Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy and friends are resting this week and will return next week. However, we have a leader from our local church community giving today's message. Sarah, I wasn't aware that Columbia was teaching outer world experiences. Did we find a new universe? Before we have the uh, Columbia organizational psychologist come, I don't know what he's going to talk about, maybe another world. But uh, let's greet one another. And you can be seated. We're going to practice the rule of life. Going to give you a moment of uh, silence and solitude. Welcome those in person and those joining us online, online live. Um, let's bow our heads for a moment of silence as we center ourselves. Let's exhale all the ruminations all the anxieties, the toxicities was laid before the feet of the Lord in the house of God. And inhale the transcending presence of God, his peace and his presence. February 6th, in Jesus' calling. Come to me and rest. I am around you to bless and restore. Breathe me in with each breath. The way just ahead of you is very steep. Slow down, cling tightly to my hand. I am teaching you a difficult lesson learned only by hardship. Lift up empty hands of faith to receive my precious presence. Light, life, joy, and peace flow freely through this gift. When your focus turns away from me, you grasp for another things, you drop the glowing gift of my presence as you reach for lifeless ashes. Return to me. Regain my presence. All God's people pray. Amen. Well, Paul God, let's give him a hand as he comes up. Bless him. Hello. Okay, great. start. Okay, great. Um, so, uh, first slide. I just want to show the doodle, just because it's there. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> where's the first slide? Ah, okay, there we go. All right, so, uh, <laughs> so I don't need to convince you that life is uncertain. Um, uh, we ask questions all the time like, who will I date? Um, where will I work? What hobbies are going to occupy my free time? Is inflation happening? Uh, should I get in on the latest meme stonks? And how will this K-drama end? The questions are endless. Okay. But um, so today I want to explore a couple of questions. Uh, they're written right there. But um, how do we think about uncertainty? Uh, how do we make decisions in our uncertainty? And how did Jesus instruct his disciples in their time of uncertainty? Um, so with that, we'll get started. All right, next slide. So uh, 
in typical consulting fashion, two by two matrix. Uh, so right up front, I want to uh, differentiate risks from uncertainty. Um, and if you can see the definitions there uh, of what each are, but a risk generally refers to a decision-making situation under which all potential outcomes and their likelihood of occurrence are known to the decision maker. So risks can always be reasoned through using logic. Risks have probability assignments. If you know what you want to go for, you can logic it out. Now, uncertainty cannot. So uncertainty implies that outcomes are unknown and the probabilities cannot be calculated. Why? Because the possibilities are limitless. Um, who knows what could happen? And therefore, you can't actually probabilitize uh, the, uh, the outcome. So sometimes we conflate the two and we assign probabilities to things that actually shouldn't have them, uh, and that becomes dangerous. And we'll talk about why. So next, despite the uncertainties that we experience, we still need to make decisions and we still need to act. So if the difference between a risk and an uncertainty is knowing um, what all the potential outcomes are, how do we go about in our day to day uh, find out what those options are? Um, how do we uh, try to stay informed? Or how do we make decisions in the midst of all of this uncertainty? Next slide. We binge on information. All right. OK, I just wanted to show off donuts. But, uh, <laughs> so we binge on information. Um, but simply binging on information uh, indiscriminately gets us into trouble. Why? Because whenever we reach uh, for our phone or scan our newspaper or get caught up, uh, we're not only informed, but we're also formed. So the things that we consume form us. Uh, news consumption shapes our senses of belonging, how we judge the value of our lives, and even how our brains function. So uh, I just want to highlight three things on the next slide. So highlighting three dangers, uh, just to name a few, of binging on the news, the internet, Twitter feeds, whatever you use to stay connected. Uh, one is simply, I'm not going to read this, but noise from the speed and volume of information. So there's a lot of information out there. Uh, a lot of it is uh, opinion. A lot of it is just noise. Um, so due to the sheer volume of content out there and the speed at which it's delivered, there's a lot of noise. Uh, number two, which is the bottom half, uh, binging on information causes analysis paralysis. And we've experienced this time and time again. So Neil Postman puts, us, uh, puts it in this way, and I'm just going to read it off. The telegraph dramatically altered what we may call the information action ratio. By flooding us with information to which we have no meaningful response, these technologies threaten to malform our affective sensibilities. The goal of a properly attentive life is right love and right action. And this goal is not served when we are caught up in distant dramas. So essentially, um, we're fed a lot of stories, and we can't actually do anything with these stories. We can't respond to them in any way. And so that dulls our overall responsiveness to news and daily happenings. So essentially, you get mind flooded. We can't respond. Uh, and generally, we just uh, get in the habit of not responding to things. Um, ghosting culture, if you will. All right, next. The most dangerous of them all in this long quote that I will read off. Okay. Uh, lastly, the greatest danger of binging is probably groupthink. Um, so Thomas Merton puts it really well, so I'm just going to read his quote. But the real violence exerted by propaganda is this. 
uh, by means of apparent truth and apparent reason, it induces us to surrender our freedom and self-possession. It predetermines us to certain conclusions and does so in a way that we imagine that we are fully free in reaching them on our own judgment and by our own thought. Propaganda makes up our minds for us, but in such a way that it leaves us the sense of pride and satisfaction of men who have made up their own minds. And in the last analysis, propaganda achieves this effect because we want it to. This is one of the few pleasures left in modern man, uh, this illusion that he is thinking for himself when, in fact, someone else is doing the thinking for him. And this someone else is not a personal authority, uh, not some great mind of a genial thinker. It's the mass mind, the general day, the anonymous whole. One is left, therefore, not only with the sense that one has thought through things for himself, but that he has also reached the right decision without difficulty, the answer which is shown to be correct because it is the answer of everyone. Since it is at once my answer and the answer of everybody, how should I resist it? Um, so I'm going to quickly illustrate this point in a very uh, in a, a monologue, I guess. Um, so <laughs> excuse my acting skills. Next slide. OK, so on many occasions, you might find yourself on Amazon doo -doo 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 -doo, uh, trying to figure out which robot vacuum to buy. All right. So you go on Amazon, you type in robot vacuum, and immediately you notice a couple of things on the page. The top left corner of the search results reads one of 16 of over 1,000 results for robot vacuums. So clearly there are too many robot vacuums in this world. And then you scroll down the page. You find out that there are eight, not just one, but eight highly rated robot vacuums. And there's no consensus on the dominant species of robot vacuum. So how am I to decide, given that there are eight choices? What is the difference between uh, 2,000 and 3,000 atmospheric pressure? I don't know. All right, so we move on. Um, so we then go on to read the reviews. All right, I'll pick one, and I'll start reading the reviews, and that'll help me to decide. So I pick one, and it says 4.7 out of 5 stars with 2,765 global ratings. Great. The first review is also five stars. There's no way that that many people can be wrong about this vacuum. No way. OK, end scene. All right, so that's <laughs> So I'm just going <laughs> to uh, leave it at that. But um, so with that, I wanted to quickly illustrate uh, how we go about in our day-to-day -day making very low-stakes decisions, right? Um, we tend to. Uh, glom on to whatever comments or feedback is available on the internet, and we do it very quickly. Um, and it's not that we reach the right decision, we reach a quick one, and we reach one that uh, everyone else seems to agree with, and therefore I cannot be wrong. Um, yeah, let's go figure. So again, Thomas Merton must be right, because we do it all the time. Uh, <laughs> but, so, but let's step back from this type of example, low stakes decisions, and we're going to go into a more high stakes decision. Um, so let's say that the stakes are higher and the decision actually is legitimate. Uh, what then? All right, so now we're going to go into the passage for today. So in the chapters uh, leading up to today's passage, so if you're not familiar, it's the parable of the talents, um, we find Jesus and the disciples in a very uncertain high stakes situation. Uh, I'm going to just explain the chapters leading up to chapter 25. So in chapter 21, uh, 
in chronological order. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The crowds are hailing him as the Messiah. Jesus immediately marches to the courtyard of the temple, overturns tables, and uh, asserts his royal authority over the temple and basically says that the temple is compromised by its leaders. Okay, number two, uh, or 22, chapter 22. So the leaders then tried to trap Jesus uh, in an argument and shame him in public debate. So ultimately, they decide to have him killed. Chapter 23, Jesus delivers a critique of the Pharisees. And in chapter 24, uh, he weeps over Jerusalem and its rejection of God and his kingdom. And then Jesus withdraws with his disciples and tells them what's going to happen. And that's where we arrive at chapter 25, which is today's passage. Jesus foretells his execution and the destruction of the temple and his resurrection. One day he'll return and he'll set up his kingdom over all the nations. In the meanwhile, the disciples must stay alert and committed to announcing Jesus and his kingdom and spread the good news. Okay, so there's clearly a lot that's happened, right? So he arrives in Jerusalem on the donkey. Uh, he gets into a fight with the Pharisees. Uh, and then they have this you know, dispute. And then he goes off uh, with the disciples uh, to then you know, powwow. All right, so from the perspective of the disciples, there's people trying to kill their leader. And there's also uh, a possibility that they might themselves be in danger. And then uh, who knows generally what would happen. And so it's within that context of endless possibility that Jesus delivers the parable of the talents and minas to his disciples. Now, uh, going to the next passage, or next slide. So there's actually two versions of this parable. Um, and one is found in Matthew and one is found in Luke. Uh, and I actually want to highlight the fact that they're different. Um, but it's interesting that they are mentioned twice in the Bible uh, on different occasions. So um, I am going to just quickly read through verses 11 through 15, so the beginning half of the Luke version, just to be able to catch the differences uh, from what you read earlier. So while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave, gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And then he sent the servants whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. All right. So clearly there are a couple of differences. Like there are things in here that we did not read in the other passage. Uh, so we're going to compare and contrast the two and uh, come up with some uh, deeper insight. So moving on to the next verse, or next slide. All right, cool. So uh, before digging into the interpretive work, um, I want to note some differences between the two parables. Uh, in Matthew's recording, so Matthew is the one that you read, uh, the uh, talent, or uh, this parable is delivered in private. So basically, it's just Jesus delivering this parable to the disciples themselves, not to the Pharisees, not to the masses. Uh, and it's one of many teach teachings that he gives to his disciples that day. Now, in Luke's version, uh, the parable was delivered several days earlier to a crowd of people. So there's distinct audiences for this, um, and, uh, but overall the story remains the same. This parable is also important because Jesus teaches it twice, uh, once privately, once publicly. 
And um, while both stories have the same outcome, Jesus adds a few details to the public teaching in Luke, but the major details remain the same. So the main difference between the two teachings is around timing. So in Luke, Jesus warns that the kingdom of God is a ways off. And in Matthew, Jesus warns them to keep watch that because the kingdom of God is imminent. So there is that time, time discrepancy there. But on to the content. So the parable's plot is relatively simple. Um, a rich man leaves on a journey and entrusts his estate to his servants. No, no confusion there. Um, in Luke, Jesus adds that the rich man was attempting to become a king, uh, a king of a distant land, but this man was hated. So while he was traveling, the local officials sent, sent a delegation to urge the distant government to not make him king. So that stuff is all in Luke. It's not necessarily contained in the other one. At this point, if you're tracking uh, with not only the story, but also what's happening in Jesus's life, you know that this story is mirroring Jesus's current situation. Um, so like the master going away to become king, Jesus will also do the same. And the locals hate him, the Pharisees and you know others, uh, but despite the protests, he will one day return king. So there's a lot of parallels um, and that was all intentional. So uh, with that, we'll actually go into um, some interpretation of the passage. So next slide. All right. So there's a lot of ways that people over history have sliced and diced this passage. Um, and there's a lot of interpretations to the parable. Uh, and I think while I was studying it, it's way too easy to read too much into the text. Um, things that aren't there, we just like assume that it's there and therefore, oh my God, God said this. Um, but some of the interpretations, um, just to list a few, go like this. God gave us everything we need to do what he has called us to do. Why? Because God gave us the talents in the first place. Um, two, uh, the master gives to each servant talents, each according to his own ability. Um, number three, we are, put, uh, we are to put the talents to work to glorify God, to serve the common good and further God's kingdom. Or things like God expects us to generate a return on the talents given to us. Or five, we work for the master, not our own selfish purposes. Six, the talents, uh, the servants are stewards of the master's investment. And it's the quality of our stewardship that the master looks at. Or my favorite, God is pro-investing. Um, yeah, yeah, forget that one. Uh, but I want to focus on the interaction between the master king and the last servant. So we're going to go ahead and do that. Um, again, I'm just going to quickly read through the rest of the passage uh, um, just to refresh it in our minds. I'm going to be reading the Matthew version because we got most of the differences uh, in the Luke one. So in 24, then the one who had received uh, the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you are a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Um, here. Uh, you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew, did you, that, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return, I would have received um, what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with 10 talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have not had nothing, even what they have, 
will be taken away. As for, the, as for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so we went through the passage twice now, so hopefully it's uh, lodged firmly in your brain. Um, and then we will then go on to some very, very, very high level interpretation. So next slide. Um, the basic premise of the story is this. One, the master, like Jesus, is going away for some unknown time and gives his servants responsibility. That's indisputable. It's just what happens. Two, some servants chose to accept and live with the responsibility knowing that the master king will return. And then you have the other side. Three, other servants chose to bury the responsibility and live their life as if the master king would not return. There are three distinct groups. The master did his thing, some servants chose to live in the reality that the king would return and therefore accepted their responsibility. Other servants chose to deny the responsibility, literally bury it in the ground, and act as if the king would not return. All right, next slide. So the meat of the passage is right here, the return of the king. All right, so when the master king returns, he praises the two faithful servants for their trustworthiness. But when the third servant approaches the king, the servant responds in number one, fear, and then he lashes out against the master, critiquing the master's character. So I find this to be pretty commonplace, especially if you're caught like, you know, it's like, oh my God, he showed up. What do I do? It's your fault. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what we do. Um, and I think that this is exactly the, the, the response of this, uh, this third guy. But ultimately he gets rebuked. Uh, his talent is taken away from him and he's thrown out or he's killed. Um, in the two versions, in Matthew and Luke, it's a little bit different. So now it's possible to read this parable of the talents and minas and think that the king is being harsh. Uh, he's casting out servants who don't produce a return. But the, result, uh, but the return result wasn't the problem. The parable concludes with Luke 19, 27. Uh, the king's enemies are those who don't want his lordship over him. So that's what the end of the parable actually says. Uh, the king isn't punishing those who don't work hard or get results. The king is removing those who don't want him to be lord over their life. And in essence, he's giving them what they want, life without him. So the unfaithful servant in this parable didn't so much waste the master's money. He simply chose not to live in the way that his master intended. And so he rejected the opportunity to participate in ushering in God's kingdom. And as a result, he was judged wicked and lazy. So before I go on further, I just want to make a couple of clarifying remarks uh, and what this parable is not. So this parable is not about works righteousness. So uh, whether you use your talents or not is not a salvation issue. Uh, it's not that you know the first two people were working their ways to heaven uh, by, um, by increasing the amount of talent. Uh, it's a stewardship issue. Uh, the first two servants are not earning their way to heaven. And uh, it's about how we choose to wait for Jesus' return, stewarding God's treasury. All right, number two. The parable is not about resource management, as if the God of the universe depended on our investing skills and success. If left to us, the kingdom of God will be funded by meme stonks and Doge Dogecoin. So no, that's, that's not the case. Um, and third, the parable is not about achieving an outcome. 
Because the fact is, the master returns a king without our help. We are not held accountable for the result itself, but for our faithfulness to the king. So he comes back king regardless of whatever we do. It's not, it's not of our own effort that this kingdom is coming. Um, all right, and with that, the parable presents an opportunity to participate in ushering in the kingdom of God while we wait for the arrival of the king. So I just wanted to make that blanket statement, and I'm going to read it again. What this parable presents is an opportunity to participate in ushering in the kingdom of God while we wait for the arrival of the king. So then how does this last point impact our day to day? Um, and this is kind of the crux of the message, but um, next slide. So in our day to day, we're constantly bombarded with issues fighting for attention um, and we're flooded with propaganda to support this cause or that cause. Um, but most of the time, the solutions themselves are unknowable. Um, but even in these issues of uncertainty today, God still invites us to steward his resources and wait for the arrival of the king in the already but not yet. But how do we do that? How do we make decisions and participate in today's issues without getting swept up by them? Um, Pascal proposes that we cultivate a profound sort of apathy, a sancta indifferentia towards the outcome of the issues that we read about and advocate for. The indifference is rooted in a confidence that God is in control and in a humility about our own ability to discern the workings of providence in a contemporary events. So God often accomplishes things for his purposes in ways that we don't expect. Um, so we shouldn't be too quick to rejoice over what seems like a positive development or to despair over things that what seems like bad news. Um, Pascal's not saying that we should insulate ourselves from the world and ignore what's happening to us, but what he is saying is that our hope and our confidence is rooted in the king's return, not in what we believe to be a solution. So in the end, like the servants in the parable or the disciples that are listening to this parable, we continue to live faithfully and make room for Jesus to show up as king. That's our responsibility. And so I'll conclude by reading a short prayer by Reinhold Niebuhr called the Serenity Prayer. And it says this, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thank you. Let's all stand together. Thanks, Paul. The most fascinating thing about the parable talents is that one talent is equivalent to 6,000 denarii. One denarii is one day's of work. So the servant is complaining to the king for giving him a million dollars to invest. It's like, you gave that dude 10 or 5 million, you only gave me 1 million. Through the lens of this passage, big driving wedge and point is that right now if you look at your hands look at your hands lift it up to the Lord look at your hands God has already posited in you and around you and in front of you everything you need to flourish in your life you might compare it to other people and say well this person has a private jet and, uh, on Instagram 
but they're lying because it was just, you know, a fake jet or something or uh, CGI. <laughs> but the, the parable is the king has no problem. He, his, he owns the universe, right? God owns the universe. You, you need to look at what's in front of you. And in the end, I think Paul really hit it on the nail. The point is the servant did not want to submit to the lordship of Jesus. And that was really the problem because complaining about a million dollars is ridiculous. In this world today, I think this is the point we have to drive in. It's really easy. God bless you. It's really easy to make money. Look at before the tech bust of 2000, people were like swimming in money. That's Scrooge McDuck. And then there was the tech bust. At one point, AOL was like worth, Priceline was worth like like a trillion dollars. And then it went to like a dollar. You're gonna make money, but the hard part of the uncertainty of the psychosocial factor is keeping it. How many people here invest in the market and you look at the market and you're like, oh Lord, oh Lord. And then when, and, and when it goes up, you're like, yes, Lord. And then, oh. So your whole life is like, yes, no, yes, no. It's, it's about timing and no one can predict it, the time. So if there's no way for you to predict the future, then how shall we live? By the values of the king. It's really not about a quick way to make money. It's about timing. And if you want to live a certain vision of your life, you have to have values. And this is really what the parable is about. It's aligning to the values of King Jesus and the God of the universe. So what's the good news? I know you don't want to make decisions today. Too many of them, right? The good news is everything you need to flourish you have right now. But it's all a matter of perspective. So as you lift your hands to God today, Will you pray for clarity? To not look around, not look within, not look at others, but look at what God has given you, what God has placed in front of you, what God has posited in front of you and in you for the work of the kingdom. And start, start watering through gratefulness. Let's make that our prayer today. I have a maker. Oh 
tear that falls. He sees each tear that falls. And hears me when I call. Father, I have a father. He calls me his own. He calls me his own. He'll never leave me. He'll never leave me. No matter where I go. No matter where I go. He knows my name. anything and everything because well there's you can't tell the future but what this text is teaching is one you can't be uncertain about who's boss and who's king of your life right that has to be certain and that's something that you have to decide because the if Everything and every decision you make will be influenced by that certainty or uncertainty. Well, if God gives me this, then he's king. Well, that's not going to work for very long, a utilitarian kind of framework. Well, if he blesses me and if I get into this school and this job, then, well, then if God actually gives you the promotion and the job and then the seven columns, or, you, I mean, you might be greedy, eight columns and... Then you're like, well, now that I'm sustainable and upwardly mobile, I don't need God. And that's what usually happens in the church. Sometimes people think prosperity is only from God. But if the enemy can give you prosperity and end your faith game, he'll do it easily. Because to him, money is monopoly money. Scary thought, right? You're like, well, if God gives me money, then he'll be, he'll be, I'll serve him. No. Prosperity actually might be the greatest threat to your walk of faith. So that's really the uncertainty that we have to wrestle with is, is he king of my life? And that's why I'm not going to cooperate because his plans and my plans are not aligned because he's not, I'm king. I, I think I'm smart, so I'm going to live my life this way. But in the end of the day, in the parable, who's king? God's king, no matter what, you agree with it or not. It's either you align or don't. <laughs> I, I really like this take on this message from an organizational point of view. It was actually pretty interesting. Because the whole world I mean, look at your neighbor. I mean, the whole world gone crazy, right? I mean, I never thought 2022 would look like this. 
I never thought I would invest in blockchain technology because I thought crypto was fraud until two years ago. But then, you know, I didn't see Russia trying to invade Ukraine. I didn't see China becoming really powerful and corrupt. Well, the U.S., I don't need to say, you know what's going on. So what are people trying to do? They're trying to mitigate an uncertainty. That's why decentralized finance exists. We don't trust institutions anymore. And the more and more I think about it, it's like, okay, we got to mitigate uncertainty. But it doesn't matter how much you mitigate it. The uncertainty will exist, except those two things, and this text shows us. And that's 2,000 years ago. So in this crazy world, let's take our lives out of, out, of, out of our hands because we've seen the people we thought were smart are not. We thought people who we thought were good are not. And now we got to put our lives into his hands. That's the certainty we must have today. That's for certain. Because let me guarantee you this as we end today. I don't know what will happen tomorrow, but I can guarantee if you put your life into God's hands, you'll be in the safest place. I can guarantee that. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you One thing that Paul said was when he gave the servant what he really wanted was a way out. Reminded me of the great divorce. God doesn't ever send anyone to hell, per se. He gives what the human heart longs for, complete autonomy and freedom from him, and says, okay, you don't need to serve in my kingdom. It's amazing, Father, that you are so good, even though you're the God of the universe, you give us complete cho a choice out of our own volition to follow you or not. We don't need to pretend to. So today, will you make God king and leader of your life and say, God, I want to expand your kingdom and I want to complete my assignment here. And not look at anyone else, not look at anything else. Because that's the call today. And if you don't want your talent, I'll take it. <laughs> Let's buy our heads for the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people say, amen. God bless you. Go put that talent to work. Amen. Welcome to our Sunday service at 180 Church. My name is Minyang, and I'll be going over our community news before going into our sermon for today.
Our first announcement is about tithes and offering. If you're a member here at 180 Church, we ask that you remember to keep God in the center of your finances. So please tithe faithfully, which you can do at Venmo, Zelle, Chase Quick Pay, or PayPal. If you're a visitor with us here today, we welcome you to our service, and there's no financial obligation to give. But if you'd like to make a donation, you can feel free to do so in those methods. Our next announcement is about, is about Bible Reading Group, or BRG, as we like to call it here. We have an Instagram handle and a Tumblr page at 180BRG, where you can jump in at any time to read the Bible with us. Um, there are regular posts on both channels, so feel free to follow along and get fed with the Word of God. Um, speaking on getting fed with the Word of God, we now have devotionals available for purchase at our 180 Cafe. Um, as Dr. Sammy mentioned last week, um, devotionals are a great way to tune into our hearts and God's heart, even when we don't have the words or the power to pray. And we have a few available that you can purchase via uh, Venmo or QuickPay at the cafe now, so feel free to check them out. Next up is all of the different ways that you can pray with us or pray with us or request prayer from our prayer team at 180. We invite you to use these resources at 5397prayer or prayer at 180church.tv. And we also have house of prayer here in the theater at 1140 uh, before service begins. So feel free to come and align your hearts. Next up is all the different ways on social media that you can stay connected with our church. We're on three Instagram handles at 180church, 180brg, and 180fellowship. We have a YouTube channel at 180churchNYC. Dr. Sammy here, uh, our past, head pastor here at 180 Church, has a Twitter page at Dr. Sammy Kim. Our Facebook page is at 180 Church. And as mentioned, we have a Tumblr page at 180brg, so feel free to follow us, like us, and keep up with us throughout the week. Our next announcement is about small groups, which are still mostly being held remotely during this time. Um, small groups are where we can meet in smaller pockets of our community and connect during the week. Our adult groups meet Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Our young adult group meets every Thursday at 7.30 p.m. And our college group, 180 Fellowship, meets in pers person, I believe, on Mondays at 7.30 p.m. And if you're interested in getting plugged in, you can come talk to me after service. Our next announcement is about our children's ministry. We need volunteers to help with watching our little runs during Sunday service. So if you enjoy hanging out with the younger crew and helping them to learn more about Jesus, you can speak to Pastor Leah or Michelle Kim. Uh, we also need volunteers for our 180 Cafe, which you guys pass on your way in here. We have a great team who serves up really delicious coffee and tea and other beverages, and they need some more help um, and more hands. So if you're interested in helping out, you can talk to Danny O or Wendy Lee. Or if you're, if, if you're interested in serving the community in a different way than the ones I mentioned, we do need more people on the greeting team to help welcome our members and visitors. So if you'd like to help out in this way, you can also talk to Danny O or Wendy Lee about this. That's it for all of our announcements today.